Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. Today, we are talking about the Clean Vehicle Directive and publication languages. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Here we go again. Take two. Take two. Um, it took us a long time to um, admit a defeat. Is that fair to say, Willem? Yeah, we resisted for a long time. And then, you know, the first time it went, well, we recorded, but then your uh, words weren't recorded. So it was like a monologue with lots of pauses from my end. The second time we tried and then we still couldn't make it work. So fingers crossed this works uh, today. Third time a charm. <laughs> okay, so what's the plan for today? Hopefully this should be one of our best episodes because we, as you heard, we're re-recording this. So we should nail it. Let's see if that's if that's possible. Um, the main dish for our meals today, um, we will be talking about the Clean Vehicles Directive and its connection to public procurement. And when we will move to our dessert, we will have a chance to discuss publication languages. And what we mean by that is in what language should one as an academic publish? Should that be English or your national language if by any chance you're not a um, native English speaker? So let's kick it off with the Clean Vehicle Directive. Um, I would want us to start with a little bit broader context. Um, the broader context, of course, is that we are right now in this transitional period in which more and more is happening on the um, legislative agenda and the European level. Um, we see some uh, new requirements being introduced, minimum green criteria being introduced. And that has been something that we both with Willem have uh, had a chance to work on already for some time. And one of the fruits of that work will be coming soon. Um, Willem, will you, would you like to give it a bit of a shout out to, to your editorial work? Yeah, so uh, th thank you, Marta. That's a very kind, uh, <laughs> kind interview. We did not set this up from the start, um, or at least I, I think we didn't. No, so uh, Roberto Caranta and I, are we editing a book on mandatory requirements, mandatory sustainability requirements in the public procurement law context, and um, one of the best all the authors are great, but you're, of course, included there, Marta, as well, if we're passing out kind compliments. Kindness. And we're really trying to, like, understand this trend towards from voluntary sustainable procurement to mandatory public procurement, which is mostly sparked by the Green Deal. We recorded an episode on that already, one of our very first episodes. Um, so have a, a listen there as well, of course. Um, but one of the... I would say only um, examples that we had so far of like a clear mandatory requirement in public procurement was the Clean Vehicles Directive, right? So um, when it comes to transport, we have already had mandatory requirements uh, resting on the shoulders of contracting authorities in Europe for a while already. 
Yeah, um, that was hence, already before, right? That was really the one that was already before the Green Deal. So it's not sort of a new thing. No, exactly. And um, so it's currently Directive 2019-1161. And it focuses on the promotion of clean and energy efficient road transport vehicles. And that was, this directive has already been revamped once. So it was, this, it's, it first came into being in 2009 and now we're talking 2019. Um, but like, I think what's important and how I think you can look at this directive is also very much part of this new development. So that's why I thought uh, it was very nice to discuss it again today um, uh, because it's, might- it's part of this bigger trend. And we actually might look into some of the sectoral legislation in upcoming episodes because this is also a little bit connected with the fact that um, we are a little bit in this moment uh, where we can see really change of the system. And what I mean by that is that it used to be that as a procurement specialist, you knew your directives, your procurement directives. To a certain extent, for some people, if they worked within utilities, let's say, it would be just the utilities. Um, uh, we right now really go outside of the directives. It seems that in the years to come, if you really want to um, consider yourself a procurement expert, or, or even if you don't want to, but it will impact your work, um, you need to more and more actually start uh, digging into various other legislations that um, refer directly or have impact also directly on how you will be conducting your procurements. And also with other work that we've been doing with Willem, we we looked through a variety of new legislative initiatives and we kind of have at this point a little bit of an overview how many of, of those legislations relevant for procurement there are, what's happening, how much mandatory requirements are coming in. And having in mind that that stands a little bit outside of comfort zone for, for many, um, it might be that we're not going to stop just on clean vehicles, but we actually will look on some of the other um, sectoral legislative uh, initiatives that have been introduced on the on the backbone of the of the Green Deal. So yeah, and I think bit... I think when you get uncomfortable, that's where fun learning starts, right? Because I think it was also <laughs> new, also for the recent research project that we've nearly nearly completed, and we'll we'll let our listeners know about it in uh, when we can publish it. Um, I think it's forcing us to look at eco-design, to look at sustainable building products. All of a sudden, we're seeing a lot of them pop up. But the Clean Vehicles Directive was really, you know, the one example where we could say, you know... You kind of feel comfortable. <laughs> but it's like, oh, I know that that's already there. There's something there, but, yeah. you know. So um happy to discuss that uh, today. But maybe we can uh, look a little bit, because in a way, before we start looking at like the specific rules that the Clean Vehicles Directive has, it also, to a certain extent, makes sense that we ha- we already had rules there because transport and mobility has such a strong effect on the environment. Um, and <clears throat> we knew that already. That's why I think the European legislator and also the commission has been very much at the forefront of like, having strategies for low emission mobility, uh, an agenda for a socially fair transition towards connected, competitive and clean mobility. So all these, all, has, all of that has been already in the making. Um, and on top of that, the public sector is just, is responsible simply for a very important share of new vehicles registrations. 
of the public sector really um, for passengers car passenger cars for light commercial vehicles but also for buses and coaches particularly the latter category the public sector really is 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 a very big buyer on these markets so the idea would then be is if we can procure these services or whether they're services or products depending on uh, on how you look at it um, in a sustainable way that would actually you know have a big potential to to say reduce co2 emissions so it's it's kind of going really back to this notion that um, in particular sectors and, and specific contexts, you really have a opportunity to 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 impact to to impact as a public buyer quite substantially. But um, as we mentioned, that directive was already there, uh, and you also mentioned Willem that it has been sort of revamped, updated. So can you tell us a little bit more? What we had before, what we have right now, um, any reasons why that changed? Um... Yeah, so maybe actually um, the, the directive is very closely linked to the public procurement directives. So like we said, it's a bit uncomfortable, but luckily it's not super uncomfortable for those really uh, uh, procurement lawyers out there because it refers to the purchase, lease and rent of uh, rent contracts of the vehicles that fall under the directive. There's some more categories there, but we'll leave that aside for now. And then I think to start off, there's been a bit of discussion about clean vehicles. What is a clean vehicle then? Um, <clears throat> and mostly about the fact that the directive still also refers to all types of fuels. So still uh, uh, synthetic fuels, but also LPGs. They're also referred to, whereas in a lot of the debates we're having now, we're moving away from those more traditional fuels towards more sustainable uh, say hydrogen or batteries, t battery transmitted um, vehicles. So there's there's that discussion, but um, to 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 scope down on what you just mentioned. So when we talk about mandatory requirements, before the directive really had minimum requirements when it came to uh, procurement setting. Uh, so that's the 2009 directive where it obligated uh, contracting authorities to use either technical specifications or award criteria in line with the directive. Um, so you were limited in what you could choose. Um, but now we have targets. So the 2019 directive really has targets. But where the 2009 was very interesting, uh, or that approach in that directive, is because it it also made mandatory, should you use award criteria and a focus on lowest life cycle costing, then there was a mandatory method that was made mandatory by the by the commission. Um, and, and our listeners can't see it, but I can actually see the book that you edited um, behind you right now. So it's oh, somewhere. Yeah. It's so <laughs> Strategically placed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at me. Um, but anyways, that's of course the link for you to say a bit more about that. Uh, yeah, I think that from that perspective also, um, when it came to the discussion of sustainable public procurement after the new directives were introduced, the Article 68 on life cycle costing uh, came in really strongly as the one that really emphasizes the need of focus, not only on the acquisition price, but uh, really on more holistic approach to price and also connected with the climate change crisis, um, also creating an opportunity to uh, quantify emission um, and, and really um, 
account also and include the cost of the environmental externalities. And what is interesting here is that the clean vehicle, and as Willem, uh, you mentioned, introduce the reference to actually applicable uh, life cycle costing methodology in that context. So that was a very um, clear link that also was coming from the directive itself, because if you would look into the annexes of the directive, that's where actually uh, the reference to the clean vehicles was um, included, or still is actually included, but um, as we will, a bit of spoiler alert, come to to know is a bit outdated already to having that um, that reference. Um, so from that uh, in that regard, those two were very, very much connected and important. However, what the answer from the market very strongly came in was uh, quite a lot of criticism towards the established life cycle costing methodology. Something that, in accordance with the with the with the market, was very difficult to apply, was not adequate uh, adequately designed, um, and ultimately made it uh, unoperable to a certain extent. That that methodology has not been really used, which ultimately leads to, or amongst others, leads to the uh, reasons for the revamped going forward. Yeah. So what what was interesting is what I always find is like it was made mandatory to I suppose ease the the suffering and I'm being a bit dramatic right now, but like to ease the suffering of of contracting authorities that are struggling to use these methods. Like let's just simplify it. But in that sense, when you read through, which I find it's still like it's very not very convincing about why it was cancelled in the end it just mm. basically was given a reason as well the up and i'm paraphrasing now but like the uptake wasn't sufficient enough and it wasn't used yeah. in practice so you know we're we're abandoning that approach um, um still that doesn't mean that the commission hasn't been uh working towards more methods right if you look on the website now there's a lot more that have been introduced since then. And I agree with you because the notion of that, even if the method was not working for whatever reason, I would I would probably wish they, they would give it another go of trying to revamp the methodology because there is a reason why the, so to speak, uh, systematized approach and methodology has its advantages because it also creates a certain level of standardization across the member states. And it takes away potentially this challenge of uh, contracting authorities somehow needing to deal and and, and potential um, court uh, proceedings uh, arguing that, you know, one methodology is not equivalent to another or that methodology is particularly discriminatory to another, et cetera, et cetera. If you introduce one across European one standardized to certain extent harmonizing the the approach. I think that there is a big strength when we're looking at open competition and internal market to really do so. Yeah, it would be nice to know a little bit more exactly why it has yeah, been just and, taking off the table. And and I think um, so. Um, an, an article written by um, uh, Joris Gruiters uh, and Leonard Michaud from from Leuven University, where they discuss also this this trend. It also seems a bit contrary to mm. uh, the the current development towards increased mandatory requirements. Now, one could argue, well, there's still mandatory requirements, but they're targets. So in a way, it goes a bit contrary. This was swimming against the tide, like the tide seems to go towards more mandatory, whereas 
I will get to that when we talk about targets. I, I think the the obligations were a bit more strict in the older uh, directive. That being said, uh, the directive was still very open to stating, or it, in another other, I should phrase it differently. The directive left open how many technical specifications or how you would actually use fulfill that requirement of award criteria. So there was still space and room to 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 to, to use that. Um, so you could say, well, well that was a, perhaps a um, uh, a way to leave room for the member states to tailor make procurements in that sense. And that was one of the reasons also why they abandoned it, right? It was also said, well, it was too stringent. It was too, you know, we have to tailor make. So the, the standard thing that always comes in addition to administrative burdens, right? They were too high. They need so it for didn't discretion work. also, right? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. But that also then leaves us to um, this revision that we already mentioned on several occasions and and we indicated a couple of the reasons behind it. Um the main change is, of course, from this more stringent requirements of obligation to apply the life cycle costing methodology that is being established to creating targets. And that also means that if you take the directives today and you look into the annexes, the reference that currently is out there to the LCC method is outdated. So that's important to have in mind. Um, so what right now is for me particularly interesting is because we're really entering this discussion, um, the technical specification award criteria method, something that is a little bit more specific versus where we can see more broadly any time that we're entering the discussion about taking upon environmental considerations that are to fight climate change more and more the tool that is being used in the legislative uh, process and what is being really introduced to the law are targets. And this is the case here, right? Um, but how we work with targets, targets are not really a standard type of tool that we as lawyers are used to working within the law, isn't it? Yeah, so I think it's becoming more and more important. And um, maybe to give our, our listeners an idea the way this directive does it, right? So uh, they're country-specific targets in the Clean Vehicles Directive, um, uh, clearly stipulating a certain percentage of a type of vehicle um, uh, related also to a time period. So say the first time period already ends in 25 so in, and then from then from 26 to 30, sometimes the, the percentage also increases, right? So it's a bit of a staggered, slow uh, path in which like this, uh, the, the, the new procurements of these vehicles must meet the requirements of the, of the directive. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's a new, it's to a certain extent, a new era, area. Um, look, we see, we've seen very clear examples of where targets are included in international agreements, Kyoto, Paris, etc. That's where we also see different types of litigation pop up, so public interest litigation, um, um, where <clears throat> entities that aren't normally part of or directed at the uh, in or aren't the the um, how should I say it. They're not the ones referred to in the legislative They're act. They're not the addressees of the target. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. the word I was looking for. Um, but they are um, impacted. Affected, yeah. 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 
Um, so it's citizens united in Urgenda stating that the Dutch state had not fulfilled its requirements under international treaties and that the, it did not m do enough to meet those um, uh, to meet them. And then the Dutch Supreme Court, through a reasoning also based on human rights, the right to life, etc., stated that the, the or ordered the Dutch government to do more when it comes to climate change and meeting that requirement. And you see more and more of that with the newest um, German case, right, and this intergenerational um, arguments and reasoning. Uh, so it's very interesting, but it has been for a long time something that absolutely stood outside of the realm of our interest in public procurement, right? Because the there's not really issue of standing when it comes to these debates. Uh, the uh, you know the broad understood um, society doesn't really have standing in challenges in procurement and so on. And and having in mind that those targets uh, also within clean vehicles are addressed in member states, there is this presumption that there is obviously still a fair bit of way until this really hits individual contracting authority. Because the next question, of course, here is. Um, the member states are being left with a bit of discretion to decide how to distribute those targets. And it isn't a discretion to potentially decide that actually none of it should be in public procurement, but they somehow do it somewhere else. Now, in context of clean vehicles, that would be a bit difficult to argue due to the scope of the sector and how big buyer the public buyer is really in that sector, as Willem mentioned at the beginning of today's recording. So those targets are being distributed and we will see more and more those targets being distributed also in the national action plans and the various national action plans that come into place when it comes to um, fighting climate change, when it comes to um, energy efficiency, when it comes to all these various aspects. Uh, for for Willem's book, actually, we had a chance with my PhD student um, to look in some of those national action plans. And I would say that all of them refer to procurement. To large, to, there is a quite big of a difference between them. Some of them will just mention them one or two, and some other countries actually already have quite elaborative policies and strategies on on, on how these targets are ultimately implemented or will be implemented through procurement. Um, so, so, so we definitely have that, uh, which uh, in our world so sort of yeah originated in the clean vehicles. So, so what I think is interesting about what you just said. It's because it's a bit polar opposite to what I'm seeing in the Netherlands or in mm -hmm. some other member states is where I think the government is just uh, to a certain extent hoping that these targets will be met in general, right? Mm. So because it's a member state target um, and the directive also clearly states in the preamble, yeah, I know, I mean, it, it, we should leave room to the member states to take into account the purchasing capacity and socioeconomic um, aspects of regions uh, to see, I think the underlying reason is, reason is who can carry the load, right? Yeah. Who's best equipped to, you know, to, to procure electric buses instead of diesel ones, um, who has capacity to do budget, et cetera, right? But then when it trickles down to who should actually do what, right? So the directive doesn't say the city of Amsterdam needs to procure this much because, you know, you'll need to, at a point, unless you've, you've got good faith and you hope that by 25 or 30, 2030, it'll all be okay, there needs to be some type of implementation happening um, or at least distri distribution. Yeah, right? but I think that in that sense, we are on the same page because why all those national action plans refer to procurement? 
they refer to procurement in a very broad sense, in this very, you know, in this language that we saw, you know, the good five and ten years ago when it comes to sustainable is very much nudging is very much policy it's like well it would be nice if you kind of do x y and z so it's not that what i mean by those national action plans that you find anything anyhow that you could or derive some sort of obligations or see that some sort of obligations really clearly is to come but i think that the uh, notions of uh, particularly climate change litigation that we see more and more also on the european continent suggest that uh, the states will be nudged to ultimately really start to take it seriously because why this litigation may not happen in the procurement, if they're going to happen at all, that ultimately will consequently mean that the government needs to kind of, you know, put a metaphorically big girl pants and sort of actually distribute those targets and figure out what they're doing. Because if they don't do anything, this is one-on-one, -on -one, this newest um, German case, right, when it comes to the litigation, when the court ultimately said, well, there is no way that you will come anywhere close to that target because you know we're cleared there. And there is this need of balancing. You cannot sort of say, oh, for the next 10 years, we don't do anything. And the next generation will need to carry the burden, sort of the double of the burden of the limitations because you were kind of slow and lazy. Um, so, so I think that while all this discussion may not be happening in a procurement, it will trickle down ultimately to procurement, uh, the procurement uh, design, because through administrative channels and governance channels, those targets will be distributed ultimately, ultimately there. But um, wanting to sort of wrap up the discussion regarding the clean vehicles, um, what would be the sort of one, two main takeaways, one, the main sort of themes that you would want Willem to leave our listeners with because we kind of drifted away we kind of had a very well, academic no, I mean, brother conversation <laughs> no i mean to make it concrete i think it would be useful to think about including something so the, the directive has a reporting uh, aspect to it right but that's focused on you know it, it has the target been achieved so you have why, an obligation why, of monitoring <clears throat> somehow here yeah but why i don't perhaps to to overcome this issue you could leave it to the member states but to at least have the member states you know, report significant plans in which they're stating this is how we're distributing the load. Something that uh, is an easy way for to force the member states to make sure that that they're taking this seriously. I think that's that's uh, one way of going about it. And I think also when we because I think we'll come back to public interest litigation maybe in, a, in another episode. I think it's a really interesting topic. I think what would be difficult here though when we talk about substance is. Still, you could question, is there a causality between, say, in a, a human rights infringement and them not reaching this target, right? Then the government could still say, well, you know, we didn't meet that target. And that's perhaps an issue when we have to talk to the commission again. Um, but we're doing enough on other fronts, right? So mm. particularly with this, because I, I do think that to a certain extent, you would need the human rights angle to be able to get these cases to the courts. That you, that's what you're seeing in a lot of these international cases. Whether it would be, you know, the, the the agenda case or any type of other public interest litigation, um, so that's so the the causal link between the harm that's done, right, and the the um, the actual obligations that rest on the shoulders of of the member states here. I think that's still perhaps a bridge too far, but good for discussions. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, still, I think what's interesting here is that the Clean Vehicles Directive is just a great example of a mandatory requirement in public procurement. I think it enforces the need for public buyers to and public procurement lawyers to learn more about other types of secondary legislation, what we talked about in the beginning. Perhaps we need to become environmental lawyers or the other way around. Maybe we'll make the environmental lawyers public procurement lawyers, right? Let's not you for get, sure need to, to become somehow fluent in more of those things. The same way that I think everyone will need to become more fluent or needs to be more fluent in various aspects of digitalization and technology development. Uh, the same way about environment. And I think that one, my last point to this that I would want to make is that the clean vehicle directive is mentioned every time when you look at the national action plans and how they're planning to fight climate change and deliver, you know, midday targets. And when there is a reference to procurement, the clean vehicle is always mentioned as that. So it's also creating this not only standardization uh, across the approaches, but it kind of, you know, it, it, it shows that the mandatory requirements approach works if you look at the goal that is wanting to be to be to be met in in, in this regards. Yeah. Great. So that's um the main the main uh vegetarian dish today, I guess. Maybe if we're going or plant based dish if we're thinking a little bit I thought we were eating cars, but anyways that's not that's not <laughs> in going a little that. bit um broader environmental agenda. Uh now on to uh fun part. So <laughs> you don't don't ever say these things because like the it was already fun, right? The... I mean, fun part because I'm assuming that maybe once in a while we have some. I'm I'm promoting a lot our podcast to broadly our PhDs in our PhD school, and they are you know doing their PhDs and all different things. And I always say, look, like you're not into procurement. Skip the first half an hour, jump in. Then that's where it's like more cross disciplinary. Oh, you know, I'm more so rigid. I always say like just hold off. Like at a point you will be doing procurement law. So you're better off listening to the first part now, jump on the boat and then we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how successful our strategies are. But um, on to dessert. Dessert, we wanted to talk today about uh, language. And that is obviously connected with the fact that we both record this podcast in English and and we both publish extensively in English, but none of us is um, native speaker. So I guess that's also a maybe contextual why this question uh, comes to to our mind as 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 host and the question is being um in which language to publish uh is there a different value in publishing in english or publishing in dutch in 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 willem's context or publishing in polish in my context or danish um when do you choose in which language to publish and how do you make that effective what would be some of the reasons why you're choosing that? Well, well, sometimes it's it's an, an unconscious choice, right? You get asked to write a chapter, and the and it's just in English, right? Then you can't really choose. I suppose you could say no, but like ultimately, the way I look at it, and it's funny you should say that about the <clears throat> about the podcast as well, is is um, because I still also record Dutch, Dutch episodes. Mm-hmm. True. And I think the the choice to continue doing that is very is very similar to the point that you raise about publication language. Is I think there's strategy behind it, or mm-hmm. at least uh, if you're not doing that, I would suggest that you at least for a moment just stop and think. Okay, where 
at least these are questions that I ask myself. What target audience am I trying to reach? Am I trying to engage with academics, uh, practitioners, uh, the general public, right? What piece am I writing, I suppose? Um, And I think that's linked to impact, right? If you want to have an impact on policymaking, um, or at least in my respect, if I want to have an impact on how ministries purchase and how they interpret the rules, for instance, I shouldn't write in English. I should do it in Dutch. And perhaps I should record a podcast and not write a publication, but that's a whole different, I think, dimension to it. But I think it's about target audience and impact and where you would like to make that impact. Whereas I find that if I do it in English, my the pers- perspective discussions that I can have with academics is much broader, right? Because if I write in Dutch, if you cross the borders of the Netherlands or any of the, the, the small percentage of countries in the world where they speak Dutch, you know, you limit yourself. So that's a very clear um, point. And a third point, I think, for me is also evaluations. So how is will that be evaluated um, in the academic context of the university? Right? So I don't know what it's like in uh, at Copenhagen University, but at Utrecht, uh, say a double-blind, peer-reviewed, international English language journal is, to a certain extent, higher ranked. It's not the only measurement, right? We talked about recognition and rewards a while ago already. So it's not, of course, not the only way you get evaluated. But if you compare the outlets of um, academic publications, I think that's that's a third um, third aspect. But I don't know. Do you do that in the same way or is it different for you? I think that it's kind of interesting for us to have that conversation because we have a little bit different setup, Right, because you are in your home country, so the second language that you operate with is your is is your native language. Um, and I'm and I'm also thinking about all the PhDs that we kind of more currently have exposure to that we work with. And I think there's actually a fair bit of those that kind of have a similar um, similar experience to mine right now as a PhD, meaning that you work in English. Um, you're from one place, but actually where you're currently based is another country with another language. So you kind of ultimately operate within the space of three languages, right? And then that's kind of interesting conversation because the question is, you know, for me particularly, I've been 12 years right now in Denmark. So to a certain extent, I think it's also uh, to to... To, to what point I can really comment on and have impact on and, and consider really what is happening on Polish market. I'm not that in tune in it. Because also, and I think it's connected with a topic, which was another point that I wanted to say, that is, I don't focus on national procurement systems. You know, I focus and I use them as an example of a different solution, but I mainly research within European procurement law and how the European procurement law then is transposed and has impact and so on and so forth. And I think that this also will be different if you researching in, you know, uh, international trade agreements, if you research in procurement of multinational, multilateral banks and things like that. I think that it's a little bit connected what is more specifically your topic. And then to your point also about, you know, like, 
how many conversation what you have. I need to say that over the years and also since we started the the podcast, the people that I um, have a lot of chats about our podcast, probably more than, than, you know, the publications themselves. But they often are also the specialists, the practitioners, but from countries that don't have a very elaborative sort of procurement, uh, I don't know, academic maybe um, mm-hmm. environment. And they kind of find that what we talk about is 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 interesting. Undoubtedly, when you publish... Oh my God, do people think it's interesting? Oh, never mind, sorry, keep going. <laughs> I was just shocked. <laughs> shocked, of course. No, I think that, yeah, that some people find it um, somehow, you know, even just because we think differently a bit than regular practitioner, right? It's, it's, we, we're getting a little bit more abstract or we, we look at it, which can have its advantage or disadvantage. But then to think about specific uh, publication to step away from a little bit from the podcast in itself, I agree with you. I think that. For sure, you 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 have a closer distance, right? If you publish in in the language of the place that you're in, and that's the reason that I would publish in Danish recently, just right now, writing the first book chapter with one of my colleagues here. But I also had over the years published a little bit in Polish to also have access there and kind of, you know, have some some connection to the market. So I think that to practitioners, there is a link. But I also found in many cases in Denmark, when you kind of look on on things that are written in Danish, a reference to, you know, English uh, publication, the same in, 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 in Poland, probably to a little bit lesser extent. So, you know, I, I don't know um, whether one is sort of kind of ex- excluding to another, one is really more impactful than other maybe potentially but also this thing about academic acc- accolade uh yeah for sure i think in majority places really the international publication uh they count for points ref points or whatever you have in your own system usually as higher ones so um yeah and then also just wanted to t- kind of catch you by something that you said uh when you said that you wanted to impact you know policy makers and kind of legislative bodies and so on that you would uh, do that in a in dutch i think again what level you're working with right we both right now had a chance to work a little bit on on really much more the eu level with some of the policymakers and decision makers on that level. And they very often, well, they predominantly work in English, right? So it's also hopefully with the work in English, you also have a chance to impact that. And it's also um, one thing is when you have a reference to your work in a national court and so on. Another thing is when you get reference to your work in court of justice judgment or but advocates general and so on right the recognition of those things is i think also uh there and also valued so no i don't th- i actually I, I, i don't have a preference it's just yeah. i think it's really interesting to talk about to you about it also given the 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 the, the choices that we have to make and mm. i find as academics we're generally really bad at saying no yeah. at least Let me keep it closer to myself. I'm really bad at saying no. And I see a lot of other people that are also very bad at saying no. Yeah. And I find that if you have these little checks that you you do as you think, okay, this, you know, it's also a good reason to kind of say no to certain projects because you think, well, you know, I've published three bits about this already in, in Dutch. I'd like to broaden the discussion and go a bit beyond the Dutch borders. 
and I find that's really and, and and move more into the European discussions. I find that's really a useful way of also like limiting your own uh, work. I shouldn't have said this now because now people know why I'm saying no. So it's a bit of a <laughs> but I think tricky. it's I think it's a general. We could have a whole one dessert about saying no. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's a whole Let's do art that. in, that's a good idea. it's old art in itself. But uh, yeah, I think being conscious and unfortunately, you know, it it should be very fairly structured. I think that the approach that you mentioning is is obviously very reasonable and 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 valid and 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 sensible but at the same time sometimes you kind of feel okay i'm not doing i don't know publication in english for example because i don't know faculty or my goal right now is to have a little bit more local impact so i would do all in danish dutch and so on um and then sort of you know one like Willem calls and says, hey, we're doing this project, you want to come in? And it's not only the notion that you want to work with some people, that you always have super nice experiences, but also the maybe the project, that the, the project substance becomes very interesting. And then that whole sort of structured idea goes out of the window, right? Because like, oh, but this is sort of cool. Let me, let me do that. I can, I can fit it. And then you need to realize that you probably will need to deal with consequences of not being able to fit it and 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 so on and so forth but that might got a little bit is this is this you talking to your um sorry to interrupt is this talk you talking to your co-podcast host or to an editor of of the recent book yeah how long you waited you waited a little bit longer for that chapter but we managed so there we go of course yes all right um so i think if i would make a little list in terms of strategy i would Mm -hmm. say consider impact the evaluation internally, your target audience, the topic, who you'd like to talk to, those type of things I think are very useful when you um, when you think about publication languages. Undoubtedly. And then also just sometimes have in mind what you feel more comfortable with. Uh, and I know that that might sound ever so slightly counterintuitive, but it again kind of depends on individual's person uh, situation. But yep. because sometimes it might be that writing in English will take you that much longer or writing in any particular language will take you that much longer so it also it's it takes a bit of effort right it might be easier to Willem in your case write two dutch stuff than one english or maybe it's, other a, it's way a, it's around. a sad <clears throat> it's yeah. a sad reality at the moment is that i find my dutch sentences are very um, english structure yeah. have yeah. has a, have like english structures yeah so um it happens. Anyways, but those it's, are it's some stuff main, like that. Yeah, some main takeaways. Um, I wouldn't say that we nailed it. I think we babbled again, but um, we're hoping that our uh, listeners Look. got used to it and find it charming <laughs> rather than annoying, what I can say. Uh, don't be too critical. Just let us know in the comments. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was uh, Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.